So I have actually have a couple questions for you because I kind of want to get to know you a little bit. Um, I want to get to know where you're at before we get started with this sermon. So let's start simple. How many of you have ever heard of the book of Revelation? Most, yeah. Now, how many of you jumped when you heard me mention the book of Revelation? <laughs> Definitely. Yep. That's me too. Um, and then, how many of you have ever read the book of Revelation, even just a little bit? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, okay. Now, a little bit more obscure. How many of you have ever uh, read, seen, heard of the Left Behind series? Oh, good. There's only a few. Great, because it's nothing like that. This sermon is not going to be anything like that. You don't need to worry about it, okay? <laughs> so, my last question, though, and this will be probably the most important. If you had to use one word or just short phrase to describe Revelation, what would it be? What do you think? Anything. One word, phrase, prophecy? Judgment? What was that again? Justify, yep. Mystical. Ooh, I like that one. I like that one a lot. Um, my, you want to know what my thing is? What, what I think Revelation is about? I think it's about God. Pretty predictable, but yes, I think Revelation is about God. It's telling us about God. It's telling us what we need to know about God, God's character, his identity, the important things to know about him. So as we go through this, I want you to take any prior understanding you have of Revelation, good, bad, whatever, and just put it aside for a minute. I mean, you li might like reading this book, or it might terrify you. But for the time being, just for now, put those thoughts aside, and, and we're not going to dive into all the weird and scary stuff of Revelation. Now, some of it may be weird, I'll admit, but we're looking for God. Where is God in the chaos of this book? How can we even begin to know what Revelation says is the character of God? So we're going to read through Revelation 4 and 5, which I think is the most important section in this entire book. And it's one that paints an incredible picture of God, possibly the most detailed one in all of Scripture. Like the last two weeks, I have three points three aspects of God's character that this passage highlights. Number one, the God of beauty. Number two, the God of order. And number three, the God of power. So, before we begin, let's pray. Holy God, you are worthy of all the praise we can bring you. My words will never be adequate enough to describe you, but let my words be pleasing in your sight. I ask for your grace and your presence with us today, and in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. So I want to start with a brief background into Revelation, at least what has happened so far in this text. The author identifies himself as a man named John, who is in prison on the island of Patmos. Now, we don't know if this is the same John that was a disciple of Jesus, probably not, but that's not important to the story itself. What we need to know is that this is a letter that John is writing to the, what he describes as the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, again, this could actually be seven different churches, actual churches in that time, or it could be a phrase to describe the whole of Christianity, that this letter is for Christians everywhere at all times. 
Again, whichever one it is, it really doesn't matter too much, I don't think, to interpreting it. But those are your two options. But John writes this letter to a large group of Christians. We can say that. And the, the letter is describing a vision that he had while in, in prison on Patmos. Not going into too much detail, John's vision starts with him seeing Jesus. Well, kind of. I mean, it is Jesus, but it really looks different. He really struggles to describe Jesus. So I want to actually start by reading from Revelation 1, 13 through 16. Just to give you an idea. The words will be up there. I'm reading from the NIV. But verse 13, Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His hair, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like glowing a bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. I told you, it, yeah, it's a little bit weird. But in this passage you see John uses the word like a lot. You know, like a lot of kids do these days, like, you know. But this word is used a lot because what John sees is very difficult and actually impossible to give an exact description of. Now this is a very common thing in ancient Jewish writings. Because for the Jewish community in that time, they believed that you could not describe God with human words. So anytime they would talk about God or attempt to describe God, they would try to draw the closest possible comparison they could think of. God looked like this or like that, but not entirely. So this comes into play in our section in chapter 4, so I wanted to show you this example. But right now what we can see even with this section, the way that John describes Jesus, he's describing him as God. Right here, right now. This is God. There's no, there's no making a mistake. This is God in front of him. Now, that doesn't seem crazy to us nowadays, like Jesus is God. Cool, yeah, we get that. But people back then, people who saw Jesus, walked with Jesus, this concept, this guy is God, would have been really weird. But this is what John is saying here. So John sees Jesus, and Jesus speaks to him, telling him to write down the vision he's about to see. Jesus is revealing things to John, hence why this book is called Revelation. So Jesus tells him to write it all down and send it to the seven churches. Again, whatever that might mean. But what could Jesus want to say to John? I mean, what could be so important to bring to the churches? What's the point? And we get an idea in chapters 2 and 3. Because it's Jesus talking to the seven churches, addressing each church specifically and telling them what he expects of them. Each church has its own unique problem, which is why some people think the seven churches are a metaphor for all Christians, because each one has a specific issue, and it pretty much encompasses all the issues you could think of. But of the seven churches, only one of them is given a good review, and the other six have some major issues that they need to work out. The most important thing, though, to take out of all this, the, what, his, what he's saying to the churches, 
is that Jesus calls all of them to persevere in the faith. Hold fast. Stand firm. What's clear about these churches, just like with pretty much every other church in that time, they are under threat of persecution from the Roman Empire. Now, the Romans didn't take kindly to people who met in secret, like the Christians did, refused to participate in the temples to their gods, like the Christians did, and didn't show entire support for Caesar, like the Christians did. In fact, early Christians such as Paul used the phrase, Jesus is Lord, which is the same phrase that the Romans would have used to describe Caesar. They would have said that Caesar is Lord. So when Christians start saying that Jesus is Lord, it's a direct counter to the Roman Empire. Jesus is Lord, therefore Caesar is not. The Romans understand this, and so they persecute the Christians. This is the world the letter is written in. This is what Jesus is addressing. He's encouraging these Christians to not give up or deny him. Because they would have been under constant threat to conform to the society around them. Go to the temple. Join in this ritual. And it's clear that some of these Christians were doing just that. And so Jesus condemns the ones doing that in chapters 2 and 3. The last church Jesus addresses is the church in Laodicea. And it's one Jesus has the harshest words for. He calls the church lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. They have no passion. They're just living their lives, going through the motions. Now, I don't know about you, but personally, I relate to Laodicea. I find myself going through the spiritual motions of just church, prayer, Bible reading, but not growing and not enjoying it. I'm sure we've all been in this spot at some point in our lives. We get bored of God, and we get tired of trying to be the people God wants us to be. Jesus tells the church at Laodicea that he stands at the door and knocks. Jesus wants them to open the door. But what's on the other side? What happens when we open the door to Jesus? What do we see? That is our passage for today. Revelation 4 and 5. Right after addressing Laodicea in his vision, John looks and he sees a door standing open in heaven, and he walks through it. So church, are you ready to walk through that door? Are you stuck in your spiritual life? Do you feel a lack of passion? Because the other side of that door is going to shake you. What happens when we open the door to God's presence? Let's find out. Beginning in Revelation 4, 1. After this, I looked... And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. What a picture. In his vision, John is called up to heaven by Jesus. And upon going through the open door, he arrives in a throne room. Remember, for these churches reading this, they are being persecuted by the Romans. 
whom everyone regarded as the highest power in the world, the highest throne. So the first thing that Jesus wants to show them is God's throne, to remind them, hey, Caesar's throne isn't the highest in the universe. Rome has nothing on this. And notice how it says that someone is sitting on the throne, but again, it's not specific. It's just someone on the throne. Notice the language. Had an appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald. Again, it's the same language that was used to describe Jesus earlier. It's the way the Jewish authors would have described God. God is on the throne. And look at the descriptions, the things that God's appearance is compared to that are used in both Revelation 1 about Jesus and then right here. Emerald, ruby, jasper, rainbow, golden, fire, glowing bronze, stars, the sun in all its brilliance. I think of one word when I look at these descriptors. Beauty. God is a God of beauty. Now that's not a word I would have thought to describe God early on in my Christian walk. But it's true. In Philippians, Paul instructs his audience to dwell on beautiful things because they ultimately point to God. When we recognize the beauty of creation, we are pointed to the beauty of our Creator. Now there's a saying that you've probably heard. It's beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Have you ever heard that one? I think that's nonsense. We don't decide what's beautiful and what's not. Our beauty is not dependent on someone else thinking that we're beautiful. That's what that phrase is saying. It comes from God. When we recognize something as beautiful, when we say that's beautiful, it's our eyes being open to the beauty that was already there, put there by our beautiful God. Beauty is awe-inspiring. It is magnificent. and It is terrifying. To be in the presence of God's beauty should cause us to be amazed like we are in this throne room. But let's continue. Verse 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Now, there's a lot going on here, so let's break it down. There are 24 thrones around the one throne that's in the center. And 24 elders are on those thrones, and all of those elders are wearing crowns. Pretty clear, right? I agree with many scholars who say that these elders, they represent God's chosen people. Twelve for the twelve tribes of Israel, and twelve for the apostles of Jesus who represent the church. These thrones, this is us, church. We are represented here. The thrones are our thrones. The crowns are our crowns. We get to share in God's kingdom and rule. More on that later. Hey. (laughs) 
we also see other things, such as lightning and thunder coming from God's throne. These things represent judgment, power, things beyond human control. To us, these things are chaos, chaotic. We do not have any control of the lightning. But here we see it contained to God's throne. And the third thing we see, and this is my favorite part, is the sea of glass. Now, how many of you have ever been to the ocean? Atlantic, Pacific, yeah? Not, not too many. See, when you were there, did you take a second to think about what it was like out there? Just, just stare off into the distance, see nothing? Because my first thought when I went to the ocean for the first time was like, wow, I'm glad there's this line that this thing comes up to because if I went too far out there, it's going to kill me. I won't be able to swim that far. It's so vast. It's so deep. I have no power over it. For the ancient peoples, the sea is the ultimate symbol of chaos. It is uncontrollable and unpredictable. Their boats weren't very big, so even the smallest waves could flip them. And if a storm occurred while you were out at sea, you likely wouldn't survive. It's chaos. So in the creation story of Genesis chapter 1, when God separates the waters, the water, the sea from the sky, that's God showing control over chaos. And it's the same thing in the New Testament when Jesus walks on the water or calms a storm. Our God has control over chaos. This is a sea of glass. It's completely calm. Not even a ripple. It just looks like glass. There is no chaos in this throne room. God has tamed it completely. The lightning is contained. The thrones all have their specific places around God's throne. The sea is silent. God is a God of order. The things we cannot control, God can. The things and the people who selfishly try to shape the world in their image can never erase the work of God on creation. God is always, always bringing order out of chaos, our chaos. There's nothing we can do that God isn't ready for. So moving on in the middle of verse 6. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face of a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So we have these four living creatures. They look really weird. And it's not a very helpful description, a living creature. I mean, come on. But that's the point. 
Because in these four creatures, we see pretty much the entire animal kingdom encompass. The lion are the wild beasts. The ox is the domesticated beasts. The eagle is the birds. And of course, there is humanity here. The four creatures represent all living creatures on earth. And they are all worshiping God. Saying, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. The creatures are worshiping the Creator. And it's not just the creatures that are worshiping. Because when the creatures start worshiping, the 24 elders, God's chosen people, worship as well. Everything in this throne room submits to God's rule. There is no doubt that God is in charge here. God has the power. God is a God of power. God takes the chaos of a sinful world and has the power to reorient it back to God's self. God is constantly working to redeem all things to restore the creation from the mess that we've made it. On earth, in our everyday lives, it may not seem like God's doing a very good job. But this scene, and this isn't a future scene, it reminds us that God is on the throne right now. Creation worships him now. The chaos is tamed now. We join God's rule now. God has full power right now. So, are you ready to see God's full power? Because chapter 5 is about to show us. Are we ready to see God's glory? Chapter 5 begins with a scroll in God's hand that John says nobody can open. The scroll contains the message of God, the message to the churches, but no one is worthy to open it. John wants to give this message to the church. That's his whole point in writing this. But he can't. So he's distraught and he weeps. Who has the power? Who has the authority to open this scroll? And at last, in verse 5 of chapter 5, he gets a response. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The Lion of Judah. Surely a lion will be able to open it. The lion who has triumphed. The king. Now where is this lion? What does he look like? John turns and sees in verse 6 a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne. What? Hold on. A, a lamb? You mean like a baby sheep? And it looks like it's been slain? You mean like killed? Where's the lion? The one who triumphed. Where, where's the king? Where it, do you get it? The lion is the lamb. The slain lamb is the one who triumphed. The lamb is on the throne. 
that same throne where moments ago had someone on it who looked like Jasper and an entire creation surrounding it, worshiping the one on the throne and where thunder and lightning came bursting forth, there's now a spotlight on the slain lamb. Do you get it? The lamb is Jesus. The one who was executed on a cross by arguably the greatest power the world has ever seen in the Roman Empire. The Lamb is the risen Jesus, the one who came back from the dead, marked with the scars of his death. The greatest power in the universe is this Lamb. This beaten and bloody Lamb. Do you get it? This is true beauty the slain and disfigured Lamb of God. This is true order, the conquering of death through dying. This is true power, not in killing, but in being killed. Church, this is God. This Lamb is the God who sees. This is the God who hears. This is the God of mercy, the God of compassion, and the God of celebration. This is the God who saves. God is not some abstract concept or an absent deity who sits on his throne watching the earth like we watch our TVs. God became a physical human being. He ate the food we eat, drank the food we drink, walked, tripped, spoke, yelled, cried, and died. This is the glory of God a crucified Jewish man from the town of Nazareth. It's not in the lightning or in the fire or the countless sparkling jewels. It's this man on a cross. Do you get it? Because church, we need to get this. Because we are around the throne worshiping right now. And the Lamb is calling us to live like him. The Lamb is calling us to be on our thrones in the same way that he is on his throne. A life of looking out for the poor and the outcast. A life of challenging the comfortable and those in positions of authority. A life that welcomed home the sinner and called out the hyper-spiritual. A life that sought the kingdom of heaven above and beyond any earthly kingdoms. A life that was taken by those who felt threatened by it. Do you want to know who God is? Do you want to see what God does? Do you want to know how God acts? What would God look like if he was one of us? What would, what would he look like if he was a person? He would look like Jesus. Do you want to know how to live a life worthy of the gospel? Do you want your life to serve God to its fullest? Look at Jesus. It's simple. It's so simple. It's so hard to get through our heads. You need to look nowhere else. You don't need to look for the stars. You don't look at the sky. You look at Jesus. Everything we need to know about God is in Jesus. Our beautiful, powerful God is a slain lamb. What a remarkable revelation. So I want to close with the throne room's response to this revelation. What do the elders and living creatures do when they see the Lamb upon the throne? They worship. 
He went and took the scroll. The lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth And then I looked and heard the voices of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. What a scene. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let this be our response. Let's pray. Lord God, you are powerful, you are mighty. Teach us what that means. Help us to not see power like the world sees power. See order like the world sees order. Show us what you mean. Show us what truly is beauty, what truly is power. Help us to see Jesus and understand him better. Because the clearer we see Jesus, the clearer we see you. God, give us the strength this week to live it out. Bless us as we go on our way. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So, we're going to do communion now. And.